what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. Hello, and welcome to the Caregiver Community. This is a place where we talk about the joys and challenges of caring for our aging parents and for ourselves. I am Frances Hall, co-founder and executive director of ACAP Community, and I am here with my co-host for this podcast, Mark Bumgarner, executive director of Adult Life Programs in Hickory, North Carolina. In addition to his role at Adult Life Programs, Mark is the adult son of a father who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and adult son of an aging mother. Hi, Mark. How are you? Hey, Francis. Hey, everybody. Thank you again for having me with you. (laughs) Oh, it's my pleasure always. Mark and I are two of the more than 10 million adults in the United States and many more millions worldwide who are adult child caregivers caring for our aging parents and for ourselves. In this session, we will be talking about Alzheimer's disease and other forms of cognitive disorders. Our focus in this podcast is how we may best help our loved one with dementia when a a different health issue arises. Sometimes it's hard to determine what the problem is and whether the issue is serious enough to need medical intervention or support, and that in itself can become a key issue. Our guest today is Dr. Philip D. Sloan. Dr. Sloan holds the MD and Master's of Public Health degrees and is the Elizabeth and Oscar Goodwin Distinguished Professor of Family Medicine at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Dr. Sloan is a geriatrician with over 35 years of experience managing and researching issues related to older persons with a focus on Alzheimer's disease and related cognitive disorders and those who assist them in the care and services. Among his many awards are the Academic Award for the National, from the National Institute on Aging and the Pioneer Award from the National Office of the Alzheimer's Association. He has authored over 300 publications, including 18 books, including one that has just been published, The Alzheimer's Medical Advisor, which is an excellent resource. Dr. Sloan, we welcome you to the caregiver community and are delighted to have you with us. Thank you so much. I am pleased to be with you as well. Bless you. Let's get straight into this. Dr. Sloan, often caregivers are confused and overwhelmed by the changes they see in their loved ones with dementia. Can you help us understand the difference between medical symptoms and behavioral symptoms in people who have dementia or Alzheimer's disease? This is a really great question because um, often you will read about symptoms being categorized in different ways. So first of all, I need to talk about what symptoms are. Okay. Symptoms are things that someone expresses or talks about. You know, like if you say, I hurt, that's a symptom. Sure. Signs are things you observe, but sometimes we use the same words. You know, symptoms and signs together are symptoms for everything. You know, sign, if somebody throws up, you can observe that. If somebody has a fever, you can observe that. Um, So in a way, we're talking about signs and symptoms, um, but I think for shorthand, we'll just use the term symptoms. Okay. Now, people then talk about behavioral symptoms being kind of a call mark of Alzheimer's disease because people behave in ways that they didn't often before the illness. 
So they'll get hallucinations or they'll get anxious or they'll ask multiple questions or uh, they may resist care or they may hoard things. These are all behavioral symptoms. Um, But there are other types of symptoms as well, and these are also very common people with Alzheimer's disease. And um, we think of medical, I call them organ-specific symptoms because you can kind of relate them to the part of the body. For example, if somebody is having trouble breathing, what sounds like it's probably come from the chest, that's a medical type symptom. Or if they're constipated or they cough. Now it turns out, when we actually try to, in a medical way, figure out what these symptoms mean, we find that there's a lot of overlap between the different kinds of symptoms. You know, for example, somebody could have abdominal pain because they're anxious, or they could have it because they're sick. Right. Um, somebody could be agitated because they're because of their Alzheimer's. They could be agitated because they're in pain. And then there's a third category of symptoms called we call non-specific, and they're kind of general things that it could have more, you know, a hundred different causes, like if somebody's not active, you know, less active, or they, they don't want to move, or they stop eating and drinking, or they're not eating as much as they used to, or they even falling down. I mean, there's just so many causes. So one of the things we've learned is to categorize the symptoms, but also be really cautious in trying to attribute what the cause is without really thinking deeply. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, you you talk about three major uh, three major stages of dementia in your research. Can you describe these for our listeners? I think listeners who are familiar with Alzheimer's will have their own way of staging the illness because there's no standardized way. I think in general we think about early early phase, a middle phase, and advanced phase. And just briefly, in the early phase, uh, people have trouble with their recent memory. They have trouble doing complex things like managing a checkbook. Uh, they may get confused in new, um, unusual settings. Um, they're usually able to manage at home. And sometimes they'll, 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 they'll need help with a lot of kind of daily things like shopping and that kind of thing. Uh-huh. So, Dr. Sloan, if someone has a chronic medical condition, such as diabetes, hypertension, bladder or kidney issues, before they exhibit signs of dementia, and you've, you've spoken to some of the symptoms, but what issues should caregivers anticipate as the dementia progresses? And just what are some of the most common medical symptoms faced by caregivers in your research? Well, that's a complex uh, a couple of questions. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, yeah. <Mama. laughs> Take your time. <laughs> let, me, let me finish by briefly talking about the other stages of dementia. Early, I talked about early. Um, I'm, now we'll move to advanced because the middle is always kind of hard to define. In advanced dementia, um, people have very limited communication skills typically, and they need help with most basic activities. They often... Um, have a lot of trouble remembering to go to the bathroom. They may be totally incontinent. Uh, They may even need help with feeding and in really advanced phases may even not be able to turn over um, or remember to turn over in bed. And in the middle, there's a lot of progression from um, having mainly memory problems and some behavioral issues to developing trouble with walking, trouble with their bladder, and needing close supervision. Um, So that's kind of a general outline of early, middle, and advanced stages. 
it turns out that the common symptoms vary by the stage of the illness. Often early in the illness, you'll see um, depression, you'll see um, evidence of memory problems repeating themselves, um, not being able to do things in a complex way. Um, and then as the illness progresses, sometimes, particularly the more they need care, the more they often will become agitated or um, resist care. And um, the less they will become aware of their surroundings. Um, I think that's kind of, I mean, it, it's, it's hard to say too much because everybody is different. Sure, sure. Um, I have a question at the beginning, in the first stage, and I'm not meaning to cut you off, but I want to—I just want to understand this. In the early stages, you talked about depression. Is it because the person is aware of what's happening and the fear of what is to come, or is that just symptomatic of the disease itself? Uh, well, I'm going to give you my opinion. My opinion <laughs> is that... Um, we know that there is more depression identified in people in early Alzheimer's disease than people who don't have it. Uh-huh, okay. And most um, experts think it has something to do with being aware. Okay. Now, it's interesting because um, experts also will tell you that being aware that you have problems is often a sign that somebody doesn't have Alzheimer's or doesn't have dementia. You know, if somebody's worried about their memory, then they don't have a. Then they don't have dementia. Lots of people will say that. Uh-huh. But on the other hand, you know, there's a lot of subtle uh, awareness that maybe is below the surface at all stages of the of the illness. So that um, I think it begins to sink in that people are not able to do things, and very early in the illness, it can be really frustrating um, to know that you could do something but can't, and have that awareness. Right. And so. I have no doubt that uh, some level of awareness that things are not right leads to depression. And I think it's, that's the connection early in the illness. Okay. Now, later in the illness, uh, it's harder to be sure whether depression is present because there's so many physical manifestations developed, you know, trouble walking, you know, weakness, uh, this type of thing. And so the more that their physical symptoms, you know, people slow down, they don't respond as well, they don't talk as much, maybe they have some hearing problems or they have understanding problems, and it makes it hard to separate what is kind of a medical situation from what is a true depression. Right, right. And this is important to know because the studies of, you know, so-called antidepressant medications, they don't work that well. The further someone gets, goes on with a, um, a, a Alzheimer's or another dementia, the, the less valuable these antidepressants are. And so you have to work with other, other treatment modalities. So always a juggling act, isn't it, of medications, pharmaceuticals? Yeah. Now, have you had experience, I mean, Francis, and within your family um, with medical symptoms? Um, not really. Um, there was probably at the very, very late, uh, just before my mother passed, probably there was some dementia, um, but I have not. Mark has. 
Mark okay, has Mark, how about you? Because you know, in our research, we found that the average family caregiver has to deal with six or seven new or worsening symptoms every six months. Oh. And so there's a lot of stuff happening because there's there are medical problems plus behavioral issues. What have you noticed, Mark? That that was very true. Um, my father passed about five months ago, um, and we we had an unusually protracted illness path. Um, he was diagnosed for about 17 years. The last four of those years, he was in a facility, and that's when we really saw symptoms exacerbate. And it, it felt almost like one thing led to another, kind of like a chain of dominoes. So mm-hmm. we began to deal with issues like he, he wouldn't eat, which he wouldn't drink, which then led to issues with kidney function and renal issues. Um, so we did see this great compounding that was frustrating and, and almost impossible to stay on top of. Had he not been in a facility, we, we really could not have managed these issues at home. Um, mm-hmm. Is that... But one of the things that, that we did see in my father along with those medical symptoms really was an, in, an increase in agitation. And it was a little frustrating for us sometimes because we couldn't be certain whether some of the medical symptoms were causing that increase of agitation or whether it was the disease process of the brain. Um, what are your thoughts on that issue? Well, um, agitation is a very common symptom in persons with dementia. And um, the way I think about it is Alzheimer's and other dementia is a brain disease, and it causes changes in the brain that make people susceptible to reacting in an abnormal way to things that are happening around them. Um, but the agitation itself is almost always a reaction to something that's happening either in their body or in their environment. Um, for example, um, let me give you an example. You know, I could make you get agitated to the point that you screamed, hollered, resisted, or hit me. If, let's say I were giving a presentation and you were in the audience and I invited you up to the room, to the front of the room, and I and a... And a um, and an assistant started taking your clothes off. Um, somewhere along the line, sure. we would stop cooperating. And um, no matter how much we reassured you, you probably would kind of, you would think this was really odd. And you would eventually either hit us or resist or this type of thing. Well, if, you know, this is what happens all the time with people with Alzheimer's disease or somebody. Right. They've got the middle stage or the advanced stage, people are helping them with stuff. And, um, or people bring them things, or people ask them things, or, or something happens, like there's a noise in the environment, and they don't really understand what's going on, so they react in a way that a normal person would if they were scared or uncomfortable. And um, so it's helpful to think that way, because um, what, what we like to say is agitation is usually caused by either physical discomfort or a need that's unmet, or anxiety, or a situation that's stressful or not stimulating enough, or occasioned by a new illness, like say pain or something like this. So I like to think of agitation as the person telling you, the caregiver, they're overwhelmed and need help. 
And this is this is really useful to think of it as you know it's a it's a means of communication from somebody who doesn't you know who isn't able to communicate in the way they used to and doesn't respond in the way they used to. That that is such an important point, because so often we, the caregivers, would look at this person and we know what the scenario is. We know what we are doing and uh, and often truly trying to help. But their perception, but our, our loved one's perception is so different because of the disease that they don't understand mm-hmm. that. So thank you for really shedding light on that. Yeah. I can give you another example. Um, we did a study of uh, caregivers in nursing homes who were bathing people, uh-huh. and we did lot, we did like over 500 videotapes of baths. And in our videotapes, we had a hundred and some instances where the caregiver got hit, kicked, bit, you know, swung at, you know, and there uh-huh. was some kind of violent thing that happened. And we then analyzed the 10 seconds before that happened. And one of the things we looked at, we looked at a lot of different things, but we looked at touching somebody. You know, if you touch somebody gently, you would think that would be much better than if you touched them in a rough manner. But what we found when we did the analysis is it didn't matter because the touch itself was startling. And mm-hmm. when it was gentle or rough, it was startling enough that it seemed to, in some people who didn't react in a normal way, it was it was enough of an intrusion on them that it really didn't matter. Now, we found that the caregivers would show them what they were doing and tell them in advance and do it slowly. Uh, that, that would make a difference, but the type of touch didn't matter. Now, of course it would with, you know, with most of us, I would think. So that's just an example of um, how family caregivers are doing the best they can. They're trying to be really good about things but they can overwhelm or be misinterpreted. Without even realizing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Let me take that one step farther. Um, we're talking about caregivers and the, the incredibly important role that caregivers play. What can caregivers at home do to explore or to assess whether what's going on is a medical issue rather than just, uh, not just, but but rather than a a behavioral symptom? Um, Are there environmental issues like sleep disturbance, allergies, that sort of thing that can impact the behaviors? That's that's a good question because um, our caregivers ran across this kind of thing all the time and one you know one of the things if you if you go to a call center you know and you call up let's say your hospital's got a, a helpline you call them up with any kind of symptoms they're always going to tell you to go to the doctor and for caregivers it's not that easy <laughs> that's for sure the person, refuse, <laughs> the person may refuse to go or if they go they may make a scene or if they you know if they go you know you're going to wait for two hours and then you know they're going to make a scene and um so caregivers want to have a higher threshold for going to seek medical help um, and so they often will try to get information on the phone or they'll call a family member they try to figure things out themselves and uh, there's a and this is one of the things we really focused on in our book uh, we've got uh, a series of double pages on over 50 different symptoms right and we've got 
advice for caregivers and what to look out for. One of the things we found is that the best key to whether or not something is serious has to do with what we call the vital signs, meaning the temperature, the rate at which they're breathing, their blood pressure, and their pulse rate. And so we encourage caregivers to, first of all, learn how to do these, and we explained it in the book, and the book has got a link to a website that's got actually videos on how to, learn, how to take vital signs, and then um, know what the person's normal is, because different people have different normals. We uh, talked to something like 180 different physicians about what, what's it like to get a phone call from a caregiver at home versus a nursing home or versus assisted living, and the one thing they said is, we love talking to family members because they're good observers. They will follow up. They'll do what we ask. You know, they'll monitor really well. We like family members except for one thing. They don't do vital signs, so they won't give us the information that helps us know how serious the problem is. Interesting. So vital signs is number one. Interesting. Thank you. Yeah, uh, there are a couple more things I want to talk about. One of it is knowing to look for signs of pain. Uh, there's a lot of research that shows that, you know, First of all, if somebody gets Alzheimer's disease and they had arthritis before they got Alzheimer's, they're right. still going to have the arthritis. They're probably going to have more arthritis as the disease progresses because they don't move around as much. They're going to be stiffer, but somehow they're not going to ask for their pain medicine. And so caregivers have to be aware, you know, do they seem to wince or do they seem to make a noise or get agitated when I wash their feet or you know, when you, I try to transfer them or when I move their arm when I'm washing them? And um, so looking for signs of pain is something caregivers will really want to do. Dr. Schlein, that's an interesting mm -hmm. point, too. Um, certainly with, with my father's disease trajectory and with others, we saw that decrease in verbal communication. Um, so your advice on looking for nonverbal communication really is so helpful. Are there other nonverbal cues that you think caregivers need to be attentive to? Well, I think family caregivers are better at it than just about anybody else. They just really have to look at their facial expressions. There actually are, are scientists who have studied, you know, they kind of, when they have this kind of a, a impression, it means they're worried. This kind of expression, they mean they're anxious. This kind of one, they mean they're at, mad. And family caregivers, if they kind of learn to read the face, they can tell when somebody's starting to get a little nervous or anxious. And, then, and they do that before they get agitated. So that helps. Um, and another thing I want to talk about, uh, Mark, you know, you talked about, you know, when your dad was, it was your dad, right? Yes, it was. When, when he was in the, um, in, in the nursing facility, um, he had a number of problems, including problems with eating and drinking. Correct. Um, yeah. Yes. Well, one of the things we've become really aware of is that how common dehydration is in older <laughs> oh, people. Yeah, something like 40% of older people at home are a little bit dehydrated all the time. And that does you not, and that's not yeah, just and, limited to dementia and Alzheimer's patients. Yeah, and something like 80% of people who come to the emergency department have some degree of dehydration. You know, they may seem to be acting normally, but if you actually measure them, um, you'll find that their level of hydration is a little down, which means that Maybe their blood doesn't flow as well, their kidneys don't function quite as well. And then it takes less time with an illness to kind of get them really to go off the deep end. So um, watching 
fluid intake and hydration is something that families really um, will want to do. We'll get back to your show in a moment. Just a reminder, you're listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Find out more at themesh.tv and give us feedback on what you like. And now, as promised, back to your show. But, you know, some, so much of what you are saying, Dr. Sloan, really suggests or really emphasizes the importance of knowing your loved one um, through the years and really watching what's happening to them and watching for the cues as, we're, as we are caring for them um, throughout the whole process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we're talking about this, we probably also want to talk about the very late stages of the illness because we have to accept that it's a terminal illness and eventually enough things in the body fail that the person really can't sustain themselves. And somewhere along the line of families, and it's helpful if you had this discussion way before, uh, have to decide how much do we want to do and what is really helping the person and what would they want. Right. Because you know, we can, for example, with hydration is what brought this up. You, know, you can put an IV in somebody, you can force feed them, and you can put a tube in them and give them um, water and other liquids. The question is, you know, Often that's not what they would have wanted. And so as caregivers, we have to kind of go through some head changes, you know, about kind of uh, our, how are our goals changing and um, what is realistic. How compassionate to, of you to be suggesting that, that it's not force them to do what we want them to do, but rather to really be attentive to what they would want and honor that. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it's hard to know the more you've gone over that early. In fact, I was just talking to a geriatrician friend of mine yesterday, and you know, he's, he said he thinks everybody over 65 should have a set of advanced directives, you know, saying exactly what they would want in various situations. It's probably not a bad idea. <laughs> I My suspect wife and I that. both have them. You know, it's part right. of our putting our wills together. Sure. Um, on the other hand, when you actually get in a situation, sometimes the um, the guidance is not as clear. Right. Right. And it it is an interesting point. It's it's one of those crucial conversations that caregivers are faced with. Um, I will say in, in our experience, as difficult as those conversations were, there was a therapeutic value to them as well. Um, uh-huh. If you will, almost a little bit of healing that came out of those conversations. Um, uh-huh. It didn't make the task any less difficult, obviously, um, or the thought of what was to come. But I will say for us, there there was some peace that I think my mother, myself, my sisters felt in being very open and honest and giving my father the opportunity to do that as well. Um, but it's a difficult now, conversation. Were you able to have that con- I'm uh, sorry. Oh, I'm so pleased. Go ahead. Yes. Were you able to have that conversation when he was still able to kind of express his interests and his desires? 
Yes, and one thing um, to note is my history um, prior to directing the nonprofit was, you know, 25 years as a social worker. So for me, that conversation, you know, I kind of pushed the rest of my family into it, kicking and screaming. But from my perspective, it was essential that we have it. What I didn't expect from that conversation really was, as I said, almost the the healing value of that conversation. Um, And it it was helpful for my father to be able to say, here's what I'm scared will happen to me. You know, don't let this happen to me. And, of course, I'm sure, as, as you know and can perhaps speak to, we want to be careful making those promises but the conversation had so much value for him, for us, and it helped us direct his care as things progressed um, beyond our control. That, that is so great. It's a wonderful example of how it is useful to have those conversations early on, both because it's the best time to get the opinion of the individual with Alzheimer's, but also because different family members have different kind of awareness of kind of how things work in healthcare, you as a social worker would have known more. But I'm guessing other family members, uh, probably your mom, kind of needed to do some learning and thinking. Yes, yes. Um, do you do you have any pointers for families on, on how to address these conversations, how to start them? Well, there are some tools to do this. There's a thing called the Conversation Project, which I believe you can... Yes. Google and the Internet. Right. Um, talking to a social worker or a health provider is also a good way. Um, it's useful uh, to have somebody with some background as part of the conversation. Um, and part of it depends on just kind of how, how comfortable the family is discussing this. But it's very well worth doing early on. So talking to a health provider is perhaps the best first start. Good, good. There is so much information <laughs> that that uh, you are giving, and so much that we could explore. I I feel like we could do several podcasts with you, but let me uh, let me go back to a question. Uh, some of our medical and behavioral sim- some of the medical and behavioral symptoms seem more dangerous than others. What have you learned from your research about this, and what are those symptoms that caregivers and families really need to be paying attention to? Well, to be, to be perfectly honest, I think family members need to pay attention to everything. Uh-huh. Um, in, in, in the book, we have, um, in each of our pages, in each symptom, we have what we call warning signs that it might be serious. Right. Um, for example... Um, if somebody has trouble with their eyes, it's not usually serious if they're just not seeing well. But on the other hand, they could have acute glaucoma or something that needs to be seen right away by a physician. If you know somebody has a um, has has a break in the skin, well, usually you can manage that at home. But sometimes there are reasons that um, it needs to be attended to. Um, I think family members are pretty good at figuring out if somebody. Uh, is breathing really fast. I think, once again, vital signs are your best clue to this, you know. Um, if somebody falls down and they get right up, well, I mean, they've fallen, but they get up and they're walking around, they're probably okay. If somebody falls down and they can't, you can't wake them up, well, that's a whole different thing. Sure. So I think it, it's more the situation and how the person looks in that situation that is particularly um, useful for families to do. Gotcha, gotcha. 
You know, you, you were just talking about the book, and, and it is truly an excellent resource and, and organized in, in a very user-friendly way. What prompted you to write that book? Well, we were fortunate that um, the National Institute of Health, actually the National News, the National Institute of Nursing Research, which is part of the National Institutes of Health, mm-hmm. had identified that there was a lot of information for caregivers about managing behaviors, but there was almost nothing about managing all the other symptoms that people get, like, you know, um, like trouble eating or sleep problems or um, concern about urine infections and a whole bunch of them. And so they uh, put out a request for proposals and we were able to get some funding from them to work on this issue. Um, With the help of the Duke uh, Family Support Program, we put together a group of nine family caregivers who were just fabulous. They met with us on a monthly basis, gave us advice, and we gradually worked with them to identify the problems that needed to be addressed and strategies for doing it. And one of the results was developing this book. And um, that's kind of how it came about. It was because a need was identified at a national level. We got some resources to do it, and then we had Oh, probably 20 people working on it, various students and uh, various faculty in UNC and Duke. And it just, it took several years to come together. So it's very well researched and evidence-based. And and very well organized, truly. Um, And and we don't typically do this, very honestly. But the book is such a valuable resource. I want our listeners to know that it is titled The Alzheimer's Medical Advisor, A Caregiver's Guide to Common Medical and Behavioral Signs and Symptoms in Persons with Dementia. So there it is. (laughs) And Dr. Sloan, you have given us so much good information today. But if you were to identify the most singular tip for family members to remember, what would that be? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> um, <laughs> anybody who's, who's, who, anyone who's been in a caregiving situation knows that you kind of have to wing it, and you have to you have to learn as much as you can, and you have to be sensitive, and you are always giving more than you seem to be getting, but you seem to get more, and um, I guess if I had one thing to say, I would say, use your common sense, and um, if you know, and but also couple that with learning as much as you can about the condition. And then, when you're dealing as a caregiver with someone with Alzheimer's disease, the other thing to re- is remember, if they're doing something that bothers you, it's almost never intentional. You know, they're not trying to get at you. They just, they have lost enough brain function that they don't really, they don't really know what they're doing. And because um, I think families get, you know, they take things too personally. Rather than saying, this person has a brain disease, you say, oh, well, you know, they should know this. Or they, they're just, you know, and then they get into this loop where they feel um, put upon or irritated. And of course, she's can't just say one thing because then if caregivers get frustrated they get irritated and they get to the point where they're just at the end of their rope well you got to be able to recognize that too and you, you have to be able to give yourself permission to ask for help because most family caregivers they go as far and as long as they can and um, they, they just don't when they're ready to ask for help it's hope we just can hope there's some help around that's a really important point that that we really don't 
uh, that we really should not have to try to do this all by ourselves. I just read an article recently that was talking about, we talk about it takes a village to raise a child, but it also sort of takes a village to care for someone particularly, an aging person, but particularly with dementia or Alzheimer's. I think it takes maybe a little bit bigger village. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're probably right. Dr. Sloan, this has been wonderful information, truly. Thank you so very much for sharing your knowledge and your insight with us and for sharing the book with us. And, Mark, thank you for being part of this conversation. Thank you. It was my honor. And many thanks. (laughs) Good. We'll have you back. (laughs) And many thanks to you for listening to the caregiver community. Dr. Sloan, Mark, and I have learned, hope you have learned something you didn't know that will help you be a more effective caregiver and advocate for your aging parents and loved ones, particularly those with Alzheimer's or another form of dementia. This program is part of the MESH network of online shows and podcasts. You may learn more about the MESH and check out other programs available for free at www.themesh.tv. On that site, you may also send us a question or a recommendation for future show topics using the Contact Us button. We also encourage you to find us on Apple iTunes, where you may subscribe to our show to make sure you receive all future episodes automatically. You will find a link to the MeSH website on our ACAP Community website. For more information about ACAP Community, please visit our website, www.acapcommunity.org, and that's ACAP, um, Adult Children of Aging Parents, but it's www.acapcommunity.org, or call us toll-free at 877-599-ACAP, which is 877-599-2227, or email us at info at acapcommunity.org. Thank you for being part of this podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Sloan. It was truly a pleasure. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.